guys, I, I think we should just get to it. What everybody was talking about on Sunday's episode. And that was Ron's ability to sing a song. Uh, and just, <laughs> am I the only one? No, no, definitely not. He has a lovely singing voice. I heard he actually has a couple of uh, chart toppers in the UK. He was in a boy band. Oh yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh God, I need to look it up. Didn't, Hold on. It's it's Robson and Jerome. Yes, <laughs> they did a cover of "Up on the Roof," which is I think originally the Drifters. I could be wrong. I know the Drifters covered it or had a version, uh, which is like my favorite version, except for Robson and Jerome's. The music video is on YouTube, and basically Jerome Flynn, who plays Braun, has a great singing voice, and I'm so thrilled in this episode. As you mentioned, Micah, everybody was talking about it. He finally got to showcase his uh, vocal talents on fun an fact, episode of Game of Thrones. Fun fact, Bronson and Jerome were found by Simon Cowell of American that Idol. That is funny. <laughs> and, it is, and he asked Piers uh, Morgan to do a favor and help him promote this band, and then in return had Piers Morgan appear on some of his shows, and that is how America got introduced to Piers Morgan. It's my favorite Jerome Flynn fun fact, which is a tongue twister. And so thanks. We can blame Braun for Piers Morgan being around. That song, The Dornishman's Wife, it is uh, it is quite a song, and I think we got some Twitter feedback, as we often do, uh, in our you know following our episodes immediate airing and people were really happy to see uh, you know a different song too because uh, we've gotten a lot of Reigns of Castamere I feel you know perhaps uh, you know some of the other the, Bear and the Maiden Fair Bear and the Maiden Fair yeah yeah mm-hmm. so the specific comment was oh you know we got a new song has been introduced and what better an episode to do it uh, in The Dornishman's Wife than the one titled After Dorn Unbowed Unbent Unbroken so on on that light-hearted note. Uh, welcome to Game of Owns. We are three strong this week. Yes. Or at least for this episode. You may have heard the lovely Terry Schwartz is joining us once again. Thank you very much, Terry. Thanks for having me, guys. It's good to have you back. Zach is uh, going to be with us a little later in the week. He is in transit right now from Denver, which we mentioned on our last episode of Game of Owns that there was going to be a live event. And we actually have reports of Game of Owns listeners uh, showing up at that. And Zach was there with a band and they did a Denver, well, the Denver Thrones uh, episode watch for last night's episode. Must have been uh, an interesting uh, crowd in terms of how (laughs) things ended up. Yeah. That must be a very awkward, uh, it's awkward in general to Mm. watch that. But I think to watch it in a room uh, with a lot of other people is probably just as awkward. <laughs> I'm sure that the stories Zach will tell will be completely, uh, you know, adequate. Completely, oh, I'm, I'm completely sure the event was a, was a great hit from the photos people, I saw yeah, he on social media. Everything looked really, really good. I know they recorded a bit of a podcast there with uh, Daenerys and the Targaryens, and it seemed like they had a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I mean, he said that the event went well, and they, they, they did that episode, of course, prior to watching the show. So if anybody, if everybody just kind of like stood up and walked out a little slowly head, you know, hung, uh, after the, the terrible final scene. And, mm-hmm. and I think everybody knows what we're talking about here. The, the very controversial, very, um, well, very, very deep, very, uh, disturbing in many ways, uh, final scene of the episode, a heck of a, a thing to have in the show, but heck of a thing to end it with, uh, even more specifically. So, there's some definite ups and downs in this episode that we can't wait to speak of. 
and we just want to thank you for for joining us on this first uh, first episode of the week. Yeah, we've uh, passed the uh, halfway point of the season now, episode six, and uh, we can start with the end of the episode, which is, as Eric mentioned, a topic of much controversy, a lot of articles being written, a lot of uh, tweets being put out there and people responding on social media. And even George R. R. Martin, not that long ago, uh, felt the need to step in because I'm sure he received his fair share of comments mm. after what happened to Sansa. And, and he very much a proponent of people being able to keep, well, to be able to distinguish between the books and the show and that the show is different. And how did everyone feel about it? I mean, well, I mean, there's only one. There's right no answer. easy way there's to pose that right question. There's one answer to how we felt about it. We were we were shocked and appalled, right? I mean, I, I think that the idea that Sansa, who has remained uh, pure for, for so long and is such a strong character, is brutalized by this monster who we know there's a monster. I mean, my first thoughts after seeing this scene were, were just that, you know, what purpose did this serve? We already knew Ramsay was a monster, and we already knew that Reek uh, or Theon is is slowly kind of leaking back into into his old identity. It, it just really, basically, this, it serves no purpose other than to shock us and appall us. And I think I thought that Thrones was, or you know, Thrones can be a little bit better at that without without you know, sort of. It, it I felt abused. I definitely agreed with the what serve what purpose did it serve sentiment, and that's really something that I've still a day later am having a hard time grappling with and i'm sure like i i sort of get where they must be going and i'm guessing you know it's it's not they must be moving towards some sort of conflict with ramsay um with theon returning reek going away i don't imagine sansa will be a shattered destroyed shell of a person i think the reason why they built her up to be strong is to be like, oh, well, look, she's strong. She can survive this, whatever. But we already did this storyline. Like, we did it with Joffrey, and she didn't get raped, and she survived, and she's a better character for it. And you just put her in the exact same situation again, this time have her be raped when she's, like, already shown that she's not scared, and I just, I don't get it. Like, there was no other way to tell this story other than raping her. I just... I'm like really I've I've talked about this episode a lot. I've written about it a lot and I still just can't wrap my mind around it and I'm sure mm -hmm. that in future episodes we'll be like, "Oh, well, that's why they did it." But it this is in this is such a big change and such a big moment that there's no coming back from it and there shouldn't be. But you just raped Sansa Stark and she will yeah. always be a victim of rape. And this will always be how she lost her first time. Not that like she needed to have a perfect romantic candlelit. Like, I think she's certainly entitled to a few romantic. And, yes. Game of Thrones is a show that subverts your expectations and does terrible things to characters you care about, but always with a purpose. And this just felt like it was cruel to be cruel. I, I agree. And I, I thought a lot about this and I didn't want to react initially right after seeing the episode and, and just start throwing thoughts out there. So I'm actually happy we're doing this podcast a little bit later on when I've had time to think about it. But right. I go back to the fact that rape has been, unfortunately, an integral part of this show because it's been an integral part of this world that, that these characters live in, going back all the way to season one with Daenerys and then 
last season what happened between Cersei and Jaime, which is very different from what takes place in the books. At least it's believed to be a bit more consensual. So the fact that they keep using rape as an, an integral part to the storyline bothers me. And and I think that when you take somebody like Sansa, not that it matters who the person is, but this is a, a character that has been raped mentally over and over and over again with everything that she has gone to, uh, gone through. And, and Terry brought up the point that it's hard to understand why they decided she didn't need this. She was going to be in a way subservient to Ramsay no matter what. And I, I almost liken it back to Catelyn when she talked about doing her duty, right? And I, I believe that Sansa was in a position where she would have allowed that to happen and it it, 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 they were married at this point she didn't have to be raped they are married she says i will take this man and and that is her giving into the will of basically balish's plan that is all you need that is that is her going along with the plan um because she sees that you know it's a strategic advantage for her that she's she's playing the game by accepting this terrible person as her husband and that's that is all you need and to me there is a moment that at least i felt i saw in um in the wedding night portion when Ramsay, you know, does his whole like psyching her out, talking about Tyrion and he's like well mm. we need to be honest don't be lying and then he's he's like you know go take off your clothes. Uh, and then, you know, he makes Reek stay. And to me, when she's walking to the bed and we're focused on Sophie Turner's face, there's a moment when she's like, oh, this is what I got myself into. And yeah. I'm like, this is what I need to deal with. And I've seen people try to argue, oh, well, she didn't say no, so it wasn't rape. No, this was rape, whether or not she fought back or not like this he is hitting her we can hear that like this is clearly abuse this is clearly rape there's no yeah. denying that but to me there's this moment when she realizes that she got that this is like a terrible situation that she needs to accept if she's going to continue this plan and that is one of the things that broke my heart more than anything right. else like and that's you were you were right Micah. You, people were have been saying a lot like rape isn't a plot point like you know it shouldn't it shouldn't be something that moves the plot along it's a horrible thing and like there's no better way to tell your story than by raping one of your main characters you know and i and the very few uh articles i've i've perused this morning uh, on like vox i think was one of them um was just talking about how basically showing the scene or, or sorry having that scene happen and Focusing on Theon's face, on his tears, on his, you know, sort of shock, uh, his shock, which reflects our own. It was basically an attempt to drive his plot forward, his story about his character. Like, this will be the the um, event for his, you know, basically coming out of his shell. And, and, that's, and that's not okay. That's like, he was already on that path, I think. And right. all of these characters were already on that path. And I actually... I'm still not quite sure how I feel about ending the episode on Theon's face because like I understand the intent and I think I think and I believe that the intent was to not show the rape to have us understand that it's happening and to have us be completely on board with the terror that we see uh, and the horror that we see on Theon's face but I also agree that 
this wasn't about Theon and it shouldn't be and it feels like it in the end of the episode and that it probably would have been a lot more striking and a lot more effective to just keep that close up on Sophie's face uh, as we see her begin to be raped and just have it stick with that through the end of the episode and, you know, have it still end on her cry that sort of echoes before the credits start to play. I would much prefer that this scene just wasn't in the show. Uh, but yeah. because it is, I, I want to mention, there's two more things, uh, that I want to mention. One is that, that close up on her face, not at the very end, but when she first steps forward to undress and she begins unlacing her sleeve, I had a moment where I thought it was very reminiscent of, you know, Roose Bolton with his, uh, mail under his sleeve. And I thought perhaps she was concealing a dagger. Mm-hmm. Um, those tense moments when first watching, this episode really you you don't know what's going to happen i'm sure the book readers next to me watching it didn't know what was going to happen and 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 just the idea that ramsey is facing reek for an, like an unusual amount of time and it would have been a perfect opportunity for sansa to you know basically come and slash his throat but 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 because she didn't do that i there was for one second i was like oh that's such a shame but then i thought wait a minute why am i even upset about sansa because fact is Sansa is the last person you should be upset with she this scene is so uh aggressive against her and it's so she she is she's a victim as you said of 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 this Ramsay monster character and I mean he says to her lying to your husband on his wedding night that would be a bad way to start a marriage and it's like and non-consensual sex isn't a bad way to start a marriage so I don't know what he's playing at he's 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 just this this Ramsey character is I think at this point in the season getting old for me and and wearing very my patience for him is 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 wearing very thin as a viewer of this show and as a person who has not read the books and probably and is not privy to probably all sorts of other horrors that he's done in the books that they haven't put on the show this is just too much frankly mm-hmm. and I could have done well without it. It wasn't necessary. And, and I know that this is something that we're going to keep saying over and over again, because it was really done, if for nothing else, to begin the transformation of Reek back to Theon. My dogs and... really agree with you right now. <laughs> <laughs> They're really passionate about it. I can tell. Yeah. And it's, it's those, uh, are those the same dogs that spent all that time with, uh, Reek in the kennels? Maybe. Uh... Oh, no, no. Oh, no. Oh, they're good dogs. <laughs> I have Shaggy Dog and Summer over here. They're oh, okay. Good. They're direwolves. I was expecting dogs. maybe Nymeria to come out of nowhere and just tear out Ramsey's throat. Oh, my God. Or Lady. If hope. Lady was still alive. I know. But that's the problem that a lot of people had is, is just that it was used to develop another character, really, more so than it was to do anything to Sansa from a character standpoint, because where does she go from here? She was building herself up to to really do what Baelish had tasked her with, and now we don't know what kind of state of mind she's going to be in. And I can't help but wonder if it would have been better for them to write Sansa almost seducing Ramsay, mm. almost playing into the role that Baelish created for her. I think regardless of you know them showing any sort of sex between Ramsay and Sansa, at least if she was doing it knowing that she was playing her game and and playing the game overall to advance herself, I think viewers would have been okay with that. But to do this and, and to have it 
end the way that it did, to me, it served no purpose to the plot. Not that it ever serves a purpose to the plot, but this has been a reoccurring theme that has gone throughout this show now. And we didn't even mention the Dothraki in general and, and what they do when they, you know, go into villages. And we saw bits and pieces of that in season one or what Craster uh, does to his wives right. and what we saw the Night's Watch do uh, when they took over Craster's. And so we just can see this, you know, act being committed over and over and over again. And I, I'm I'm not sure really... Well, no, I know where I stand. I don't think it had a place in the episode, and I'm pretty disappointed that they decided to include something like that. Well, you know, you mentioned, too, uh, earlier Sansa's near rape uh, by the mob uh, from from earlier seasons and and the fact that the Hound was there to protect her. I mean, everyone has left Sansa now. She is alone. She doesn't have the Hound to step in on her behalf. She doesn't have anyone. Baelish left her and is in King's Landing. She's been all alone and the only i mean she has the smallest of promises of the north remembering a, a chambermaid basically who comes in and, and says things to her at night but you know it, it's not enough frankly that that she she has been left all alone and i think i read um i read in another article that uh i'll, I'll find the source in a moment but uh that there's a special spot in hell for baelish's part in what's happening to her oh i think i saw that as well i mean there's something that the writers have reiterated a few times that I don't buy, I think is a gaping plot hole in this story, but essentially that Littlefinger actually didn't know about Ramsay. Like the way they wrote it, the way they intended the story is that Littlefinger had no idea, honestly didn't realize what a terrible situation he was putting this in. But, you know, Eric, sort of to your point, like you mentioned how Santa's all alone and she doesn't have like the Hound or Baelish to protect her. I think good storytelling is showing that she doesn't need them to protect her, which just goes back to me hating that this rape happened because like, why have her grow so much if you're just going to knock her back down in this horrible way? Like being tormented by Joffrey is horrible. It's like, it's, it's just terrible, but like she could move past that emotional abuse. This physical abuse is going to stay with her forever. Not to say that the emotional stuff wouldn't, but like, why did you have her go through everything that she's already gone through? Why did you have her become so strong and not feel like she needs a male protector or a female protector or right. anyone but herself if you're only proving that she did need those people? Right. And to completely alter her storyline from the books only to put her in this type of position. It doesn't make sense. Even in this episode, she handles herself extremely well with Miranda. Right. I mean, the bath scene with Miranda where she tells her to get stuffed. I mean, she knows she 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 knows exactly what Miranda is trying to do to scare her. But at the same time, maybe she should have listened like that. And that makes me mad to even feel that way, because like Sir, Sansa's not at fault. That's what I just said. too. Yeah. She's, she's not at fault at all. Right. We want to be like, oh, Sansa, you but, but no, this is all uh, what appears to be a very uh, what's insensitive and uh, just. Bla like blatantly ignorant uh if words are failing um but at the same time i you know i i think that we all feel uh abused um by the end of this uh, by the end of this episode of thrones and we do feel bad for sansa and i certainly hope now more than ever that uh justice is served that we get our sort of that, that coming out of this everyone um is able to get to where they need to go 
and for several of our characters, namely the Boltons, that part that place that they need to go to is hell. Here's a question that I have for you guys and also for whoever's listening. If the show turned around and had Sansa kill Ramsay by the end of this season, would that justify this at all for you? Oh, uh, there were probably there would probably be, be um, many in agreement that there's other ways to do this. Like if even if you were to take this scene out, uh, it's totally worthwhile for Sansa to kill Ramsay and Roos. Yeah, like like very 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 much so. Um, you know, even, even regarding what Miranda told Sansa in the, uh, bath scene about how Ramsay hunts down or hunted down the last girl, Tansy, um, with the dogs, she very clearly, uh, has the knowledge that this is dangerous and that she should be reacting pretty much proactively at this point to, uh, his psychosis. Yeah. It, there would be a, a redemption factor to it, but ultimately, I would hope that some combination of Theon and Sansa end up killing Ramsay and and Roose, for that matter, and that with the help of Stannis, they hang the both of them outside of Winterfell. That would be nice, After right? fleeing them. In a perfect world. Or they just happen to find a pack of direwolves and unleash them oh my god could you imagine if nymeria returned with her pack that'd be awesome that would be so good her pack of like biker wolves that have just been <laughs> roaming the country with her i'm sick of watching the human characters on game of thrones can we just watch the direwolf story already <laughs> we need an episode uh, an event episode that's just the direwolves roaming the woods <laughs> i like that idea i like that idea a lot um but, you know, we did uh, mention uh, Peter Baelish a, a little bit ago and uh, how he left Sansa. But I, I did want to sort of ask because we, we got a little bit more insight into his, his game plan, right? I mean, it, it seems to be to set the whole kingdom on fire. <laughs> he, he has made it so that no matter what happens in the battle between Stannis Baratheon and, and the Boltons at Winterfell, he is going to be basically in a position of power no matter what. Yeah. But it involves setting the equivalent of a bomb off exactly where you just left Sansa Stark. So I think it's clear that he doesn't care about her because he somehow expects her to still be alive after two armies clash uh, all over a, a, a city. And I, I don't think that that is something that he can be certain will happen, uh, but he left her. I will say that I think that if, even if Stannis invades, it doesn't matter that Sansa Stark is married to Ramsay Bolton. She's still a Stark and the North still will stand by her. I don't, I feel like she is fairly safe there because she's so important to both the people who are there and clearly like consummated marriage or not, you know, you can remarry to a certain extent. I'd imagine she could probably, if they kill off the Boltons, be a widow married to someone new uh, and still pass on Bailish. the Stark name. Yeah, well, he wishes. Um, so I, I do think, and I think that Baelish has faith in her. I wouldn't say that he doesn't care about her. I think that of anyone, she's probably the person he cares about the most who's not himself. Um, but he's also willing to make risks with people he cares mm -hmm. about. I was going to ask, what do you think the whole motive is behind this conversation with Cersei, aside from making him warden of the north which in a way would protect 
Sansa even more, assuming that she survives whatever's to happen uh, at Winterfell. Just the fact that he's willing to give up this information that the Boltons, he's placing the blame solely at their feet, mm-hmm. have taken their legitimized son, that by the way, King Tommen legitimized, <laughs> and is now married to Sansa Stark, and they now have hold of the North. It, it, what's his What's his motive? I mean, I think sort of what Eric said, like, to make to be in this place where he has a position of power no matter what. And also now he has the backing of the queen to bring an army up to the Vale and protect Sansa. I mean, I think that he, or up to Winterfell from the Vale to protect Sansa. I think he imagines that Stannis will defeat the Boltons. He must, right? Yeah. I think he does. And then maybe he partners with Stannis up there. He's flip-flopped every which way. He possibly That's true. could. And I don't think he necessarily intended to be summoned by Cersei either. Yeah. So he's just rolling with what's being put in front of him. I think that he's saying whatever he needs to say to put himself in the strongest position. And having an army in the north where shit's going down and Sansa is, is the strongest place to be. But the whole bit at the end of, from Cersei about seeing Sansa's head on a spike, yeah. do you think that... There's no way when, he's going to do that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Just making sure. He won't do or have done. But then again, who knows? <laughs> no. Who, who does know, really, with... It's Baelish, after all. Um, I feel like with with everything that... I like the idea that he's leading an army but that it's actually for her defense and he just needs sort of the queen to think that it's for her. Yeah. Um, I like that. So he justifies sending his troops to Winterfell. Um, I like that idea quite a bit, but at the same time, if he were to die or if his plan fails, uh, he has just told Cersei exactly where Sansa is. Yeah. That is also a gamble. Yeah. True. But news of that would spread anyway. Now that they've been married. Yeah, she's the worst kept secret in all of the Seven Kingdoms. <laughs> well, Brienne seems to think so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we still have to wait and figure out what Brienne is up to. There is a, a line in the synopsis for next week's episode, which is, are the, the episode synopses this season are hilariously vague and oh. uh, blunt. So it just says that Brienne gets a sign. Huh. And I'm, I'm intrigued. I wonder if we're going to see more of that North Remembers stuff. Yeah. Come into play. Now, I know it's not overtly stated um, in the episode, but essentially the the whole light a candle thing was the message that Brienne passed the old man who got past the old lady that got past the Sansa, do we think? Or are there other agents acting on her behalf that came up with that, that whole candle thing? Because hmm. to me, in that episode, and of course there was no Brienne in episode six, but... Uh, previously, you know, sort of after that message was relayed or as that message was being relayed, Brienne kind of looked out and there was Winterfell in the distance. Now, whether or not you'd be able from that great distance to spot a candle in the broken tower in the window, you know, who's to say? But I feel like maybe somebody in Winterfell would see that and then pass along to Brienne in the inn that, you know. I felt like she was in Torrin Square, though, wasn't she? she? I, I, I would guess. It's hard to say, though. I saw somebody else post on Facebook, one of our small council members asking if, is it a trick? Hmm. I I would just hope that there are more than just Brienne. Deep down inside, I'm hoping for the Reeds or the Umbers or some other collection of 
the Northmen. Well, you know, not to uh, go back to the wedding uh, at all, because I'd rather not. But at the same time, I, I do want to say how um, really beautiful I felt the gods would look uh, in in this scene. And the, and the show's budget, I mean, Sansa's gown as well for the wedding just really, really looked good. Um, not to mention the, the Dornish uh, costumes. Everything in this episode, you know, costume-wise, scene-wise, just really uh, popped, looked great. And it was the only good thing about that wedding. It, it really, really, truly was. But, um, you know, Cersei, for an episode titled Unbowed and Bent Unbroken, there was still not all that much Dorn uh, that happened. But Cersei did have a big uh, series of scenes. And I wanted to, if I could, begin to talk about Cersei and kind of how she has been playing the game in this episode. Please. Yeah, we talked about her a bit with Baelish, but to your point, she had a lot of other screen time with the Tyrells. Yeah, I was going to say, you talk about Cersei because all I want to do is talk about Elena. <laughs> 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 she, you can smell the shit from five miles away. Oh my God, she's the MVP of this entire series. Like, any scene with her in it is better. Any episode with her in it is better. Maybe that's why they brought her back in this episode, because they knew that everyone was just going to be miserable. She she is a shining light, a bright flower, a rose, if you will, uh, on, on this episode. She is... She is great for Cheek, but she doesn't seem to be able to penetrate Cersei's um, sort of broad iron shield. Yeah, I think she just hasn't tried hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> the look on her face at the end when she sees the stuff that Cersei pulls, like, in my yeah. mind, I'm like, that's not going to last long. She's been at this much longer than Cersei has. She's much smarter than Cersei is, and... Like, I, I love that Cersei proves what a fool she is in that scene um, in the the Hand of the King's chamber when mm. Olenna's like, yeah, we did this with your dad. Like, <laughs> you're not him. I have respect for him. Clearly the subtext being, I don't have respect for you. She she is pulling a, a Tywin Lannister with the, having the quill, she's right? She's trying and to, writing a letter. she's not she's, doing she's, it. She's doing it. She's doing it. I love how Elena says, we both know you're not writing anything. <laughs> like, It's yeah. just like, oh, this is a tactic, and I, I know these tactics. She probably may have also been privy to watching Tywin do it, although we saw it in a, in a diff- at a different time. Um, but she is kind of inhabiting the role of, of, of Tywin here and, and really trying to uh, appear formidable. And, you know, when she basically says, uh, well, Elena says to her uh, that, you know, Tywin understood that sometimes we must work with our rivals rather than destroy them. You know, Cersei replies, House Lannister has no rival. And that is a bold statement for her to be saying, especially when so few Lannisters are in King's Landing. And I mean, even Baelish pointed out when he arrived to Lancel that he abandoned, you know, to what a what a what a house to abandon. Uh the Lannisters. They have so few people protecting them. Cersei is not in power and yet she says something so bold as Hass Lannister has no rival and it's just this this bold pride that is really like I don't know admirable it's really witty the fact that she's really going to bat and in one fell swoop ends up throughout this episode knocking out sort of I mean well for the mo- for the time being knocking Lady Olenna and House Tyrell's uh, legs out from under it you say bold I say stupid <laughs> well, I agree though with Terry because 
throughout the season, I've been trying to figure out what Cersei is really up to. And I, I always hearken back to the point that this season opened with a flashback of Cersei's. And oh, yeah. it's really the motivating factor, I guess, behind the, the, the reasoning behind the way she acts. Yeah. And she has isolated herself completely. She sent her uncle away. Jamie is gone. She cleared out all of the uh, Tyrells at this point, mm. which I think the the point that was trying to be made by Olena when she's talking to Cersei is sometimes we have alliances of convenience. Yeah. And having the Tyrells around is not the worst thing in the world for her. So it, it, at the very least, it's family by marriage that could protect her if certain situations are to arise. And now she's allied herself with the High Sparrow and this religious sect. And I have really bad feelings about this. And just by the way the High Sparrow was doing his Inquisition, I feel like it could just as easily be put on Cersei as it was put on Loras. Yeah, buggery and incest are both sins. So I I think it's true that since that Cersei is very stupid for... Uh, not thinking that she could be equally affected. I mean, right now she's gloating, and I think the High Sparrow, if he's playing the game, is playing the game quite well to where he's giving her everything she wanted at first. But I, I don't think he's going to take a, a single second. Knowing how dialogue um, has been laid out, that's very telling in these episodes when he says, I think even to Queen Marjorie, that, uh, and according to the law of the seven, neither kings nor queens are exempt from questioning at a holy inquest. And I believe he says something else later about punishment, or he has previously said that no man is above the law of the gods. And I think it's very clear where this is going, that he's just giving Cersei what she wants now, but I, I don't think he is in her uh, pocket at all in the way that she thinks that he might be. And for, furthermore, even she said, uh, to Lady Olena that there was warfare, that the Lannister-Terrell alliance brought peace to a war, uh, a war-torn country. And it's, it's, it's something to keep in mind, I think. Yeah, something that actually my boyfriend said to me um, about these scenes last night that really stuck in my head was that Cersei just doesn't realize that she's completely implicating herself in this. You know, she's only seeing the way that she is screwing with the Tyrells, but she's putting herself in just as bad a circumstance and not seeing that, you're right, these tables can very easily be turned back on her. Exactly. And and of all the Tyrells, she sends off Mace, she's now imprisoned Marjorie and Loras, but the one she probably should have taken most caution of is Olena. And... I can't help but think that she is going to stir the pot because oh, totally. we have Lancel, who is a part of this faith militant, who knows of Cersei's past and can speak to it and even tried to get her to atone for her sins earlier in the season. She wanted nothing of it. So I, I agree with both of you. I, I think that she is headed down a really bad road. That's really funny that you say that because uh, I spoke to Eugene Simon, who plays Lancel earlier this season. And one of my questions was like, wouldn't Lancel, when he was atoning, have told everything to the High Sparrow that he did, including sleeping with his husband, the queen who was married, and including helping, like colluding to kill the king? Why doesn't 
Cersei think of that? Like he is a huge issue for her and she just brushes him off and is like, I can command this collection of people who everyone I've spoken to said, you probably shouldn't do that. You can't really command them. I just think like, she's so, you're right. She's so dead set on that prophecy. She's so dead set on Marjorie being her rival that she misses that she's messing everything else up for her. And that's just how Cersei rolls. Like she always says, she should have been the man. She would have been the king. She would have been the great ruler, but she wouldn't. She thinks with her, her, you know, she thinks with really rash reactions, like from the heart instead of from the head, which is not the case with people like Tywin or like Tyrion. But she also refuses to see anything wrong with herself. Uh, so it's interesting to watch. I mean, she's the last... Lannister really standing, which means she's destined for a downfall. And that is, that is something that I can't wait to see happen because I've been loving her storyline this season. I I think it's really fun. Uh, it, yeah, fun is, fun, is a, fun is a word for it. I mean, I think it, it just occurred to me in talking about this that uh, just the role, I was reminded the role that Elena played in the death of, of Joffrey. Um, and so there's there's a sense of sort of almost karmaic here but there's also a sense that olena is dangerous as you were saying i i know that she you know had some co-conspirators there in the form of baelish uh and others you know in getting the purple wedding to happen but olena was behind it and olena is not simply not going to stand by uh i think in watching both of her children be put she won't be a tommen poor tommen you guys he just wants his wife and to like kiss her and like just to be happy and his mom's like messing everything up for him like so hard yet again he surveyed the room for how many guards were posted saw that the faith militants slightly outnumbered or maybe were like even with the king's guard and urged caution and you know i'm i'm so glad you brought that up micah because uh this isn't uh typically the episode where we read uh twitter responses from the listeners but we got one that i think is perfectly fitting and as soon as i read it it was just like yep this is exactly how i feel about tommen um seth knight uh, on twitter wrote into us and said no own for tommen i would have murdered everyone in that room if they were taking natalie dormer away from me (laughs) (laughs) too true so watching Tommen sit there, and and of course it, it was a very, um, gosh, that 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 whole inquest scene too with uh, Loris, you know, sort of jumping forward, and 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 uh, is it Oliver is the yeah, you know, being called to witness and and everything that happened there, just the way it was set up, the way that the basically the lid was was pulled over their eyes in both Marjorie and Loris getting implicated was very clever and very extreme, but Tommen is a king. And, you know, when when they're taking Marjorie away and she says, I am the queen, Tommen, 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 expecting him to do something and he doesn't do something that is, you know, a character flaw, (laughs) to say the least. It's interesting to me that he got caught because we see him run away in the last episode when the faith militant Storm Baelish's establishment. Mm. But uh, unfortunately for Loris, Birthmark comes back to bite him in the ass. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I wondered. I mean, it, really, the, no uh, dialogue is safe uh, in the episode that it uh, was was originally aired in this season. Uh, everything, something as small as as they're musing over his birthmark, uh, and that scene where Marjorie walks in, um, which happened one night not too long ago, 
uh, can come back and be used against. It, it's it's almost like it's it's smart, but I, like I didn't even realize that that was up for grabs. Um, but it it plays into this hugely pivotal role whereby Cersei is able to rid House Tyrell from power, I guess, essentially right now, temporarily or momentarily, you know, at the moment. What do you guys think about the complaint of show Loras's only defining characteristic being that he's gay? That's something that's really been leveled at the show a lot in this storyline specifically. That's interesting. I, I can see that for sure. But I, I also think that he, when they took him, when the faith militant came to take him, he was, it looked like he was kicking ass. Like, you know, just maybe sparring out in the courtyard. But I, I feel like there's slightly more to him. Now, I don't know if that's supported by dialogue. Maybe the dialogue that is uh, surrounding him is is just that he's gay. And that is 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 flawed. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I like the actor and I like the actor's portrayal and I like, I, I like to think that he has a lot more going for him, but then it also wouldn't be so bad to think of him as this tragic, uh, or this figure who is in love and they bring up Renly in this, in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no shame in being gay. There's no shame in, in having loved this king. But it's only, it's, it's almost done by the high sparrow to make him seem less of a warrior because he mentions that he was wearing Renly's armor, and yeah, so I, I understand what uh, yeah where Terry is coming from with that question because the book version of Loras is drastically different, at least in terms of how they approach all this. Mm-hmm. So he seemed to be much more of a competitor, much more of somebody who is at least held with a high level of respect. And I feel like in the show, that's not necessarily the case. I can understand that. I can see that, the, especially if he's different in the books in the way that you're saying, it makes perfect sense that that would be a complaint that he's not, you know, they're not showing this this deeper side to him and that he has been reduced to sort of a, a caricature of his character. No, but I, I, I mean, I think the show so far, I think it's, I, I wouldn't say it's, I mean, it's treated sensitively. I, I think it, it it is a plot point, just like we were talking earlier about being uncomfortable about how often rape is a plot point. Um, his preference for men is a plot point and is, mm-hmm. you know, how many times are they going to say pillow biter on this show? It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's something that uh, is happening in this world. And Lady Olena likes that. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Phrase. She's used it uh, a few times, but I also think it's, it's an easy means of being a, target for religious persecution and that has been brought to the to the forefront really with everything that's gone on with the faith militant we saw uh, in the last episode or was it two episodes ago at this point where they're going throughout king's landing and purging the city very similar to how the uh the city watch killed all of robert's bastards back seasons ago it, g- it gave you that kind of feel where they they were cleansing the city and so you know, we, we talked a little bit about on previous episodes how George R. R. Martin writes based on things that have happened in history and even things that are taking place in modern day uh, with persecution based on sexuality. I think that it's just bringing a current issue to the forefront of something you know that we enjoy watching in, in Game of Thrones. So it's to show that it's a reality even in this time as much as it is in today's society. And so um, I'm sure we're going to see other uh, issues that are considered to be somewhat taboo brought to light by this sect, by this faith militant and high sparrow. 
much like Loris' sexuality is bring, being brought to the forefront. All right, let's talk about something fun, guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, uh, well... Let's go to the House of Black and White. Uh, yeah, why not? What did you guys think about the Hall of Faces? Because I thought it looked awesome. Is that what that place is called? Yes. Okay, and it's I guess. a very literal yeah. name. It's like the Hall of Fame. <laughs> kind of. So this episode started with Arya washing not just one, but several corpses, several bodies of people. And we questioned in an earlier episode what, you know, really that, that rite is, what that ritual is all about. Um, and it appears they are, in fact, as was speculated, uh, preparing the body um, for some sort of, I guess, separation between... Mm -hmm. Body and 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 face, face. Uh, but I I I, I do want to ask why wash the whole body then? You know, if they just need the face, but Respect. it's it, yeah to say to say the very least, it's it's a super well achieved effect at the end when Arya finally does gain access. She earns access to to see kind of what everything is, what what who's what they're behind, basically. Yeah, I just thought it was really neat, and I thought that. That turn for Arya when she needs to um, play the game of faces with that girl uh, and and essentially lie to her about what drinking the water does and her own story to me was a real aha moment and clearly to Jockin as well because that's when he decides to bring her down. Mm -hmm. um, but I just I thought that that was such a great scene and so well done and really worth the payoff of having this question for, you know, five or six episodes. Like, what is going on here? Why is Arya here? Oh, now we see, oh, this took a really cool turn. And now we have four more episodes to spend more time in that world. I, I, I don't want to accuse Arya of being like a dunce kind of student or like a non-ideal pupil. But she, because she, we love, She's not, we love her spirit, <laughs> but she almost kind of, I wanted to say my analysis watching this twice was that she kind of cheats her way in. I mean, she has that amazing moment with the girl um, where she convinced she kind of is able to grasp the game basically from what the other girl who, who uh, is there um, who claimed to be from Westeros, just like she was. And basically at the end of it all says, you know, was that true? Totally she, kind wasn't. Of picks, she, she kind of picks up that it's all about lying and about becoming someone else. At least that's my analysis. But the fact that she fails the game with Jacken, and then in the next scene is convincing this little girl to kill herself, and that kind of wins her back in his graces, just just to me shows that she's. I, I feel like she's getting a little bit uh, special treatment. Like is 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 Jack and Hagar? This is the question I have for you, book readers. Is Jack and Hagar coddling Arya? I don't think so. Okay. I think that he's. He's proved that he's not being nicer, but they must not like, he, I feel like he, she's not getting preferential treatment because then he wouldn't have come in and whacked her so many times, you know, he would have explained <laughs> to her and been really nice. I think there clearly aren't too many people here studying to do this, at least from what I've seen. I was surprised when they did go into the hall of faces and we're, we're walking down. We do see other people there. Right. But I think, that he sees promise in Arya, and that's why the Jack and Hagar, who we met in season two, gave her the coin because he thought she could be something great. Um, but I think she needs to figure it out on her own and and really prove to him that 
she gets it and she's worthy instead of just saying, I'm worthy. I came here. Like her actions need to speak louder than her words. Great to watch this transformation though of her character. The fact that she's willing to basically assist in the killing of this young child without really any second thought. And the point was raised earlier about how she's learning as she goes along. And when she's with Jacken and she's going through her story and she's trying to lie and make it true and make Jacken believe her, uh, she, the, the one thing that stood out to me, and I'm sure it stood out to both of you as well, was about the hound mm-hmm. and how she said that she <laughs> hated him and repeatedly and Jacken hits her repeatedly. So it's clear that she developed some sort of feelings yeah. for him. You know, in this scene, I'm wondering how he knows that she that she is lying. Is it a sixth sense uh, in that he is imbued with special powers by the god that he serves, the many-faced god? Because he's he's quite quick with the whip. Let's just that's that's why I'm asking. Every time she says uh, a single lie, like the fact that the man wasn't called Poliver, that it was the hound, thwap, he hits her. And it's it's very quick, and I'm wondering if he's just that good at spotting a lie. If that, again, maybe inhabiting multiple personalities, you 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 get a keener sense of people's I don't know being that 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 he can tell that she's lying. But how is he doing that, and how definitely does he know what's inside her heart better right. than she does? Well, magic. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that that's what it is, and I think he's really good at reading people. And maybe there will be a moment by the end of this season where. Aria tells a lie and they believe her because she's so good at the game of faces. Hmm. Um, I mean, maybe like that's what I think it might go to, but I really, I was struck by that thing that, you know, she says she hates the hound and he says he doesn't because I don't think that means she loves him. I don't think she has like romantic feelings for him, but I think that there was definitely some respect there for him and respect. yeah, Yeah. And she was lying to herself, I think is what that scene showed us about how she feels about him. A girl lies to me, to the many face God, (laughs) to herself. (laughs) Jack and Hagar, like it is so good to see him again, like to have him back, to have that actor back. Yeah, he's so good. And he he always reminds me of Brendan Fraser, but he's also <laughs> slightly different and it's really cool. But it's it just these scenes in these catacombs make me think of a mummy movie. But What about the uh, very end shot with Arya where she's staring at the face of the old woman? Mm. Did that remind you of anybody? Did it remind you of someone? I wasn't. It did. And I saw a couple of people tweet about this too. And that was Septa Mordain. Interesting. What? But I have to go back and take another look. What? I was actually, I was watching on HBO Go and it was like a very dark screen. So I was having a yeah, hard. It was really dark. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I would have to go back and look at that. That, I mean, I feel like if that was in there, that might have been unintentional. Like when they put George W. Bush in. Uh, <laughs> this this pop department cool. does have some difficulty with severed heads. Yeah. <laughs> Terry, Terry, what you don't know is George Bush, he was in there somewhere. They're just not telling us. Oh my us. God. Could uh, you imagine? That would be amazing. Someone find someone do a breakdown uh, of every. It really, face it really begs the-, the question: like who whose faces they molded? Like was it every uh, extra? Was it like the executive or David and Dan in there? You know, because yeah. that'd be cool. Yeah, I'm sure a, a large number of those columns were CGI, um, but there were probably dozens that weren't. Um, so yeah. that's cool. I, I like again in the Hall of Faces getting to the old woman, but that all of the columns are surrounded by candles that are constantly lit. Um, it just, it really, 
I don't know if they're, well, it just seems um, clearly magical. Uh, and that, you know, these faces aren't uh, to think of reality decomposing at all. Um, they, they appear to be preserved somehow, uh, probably by that same magic. And so what Arya is going to do, and the reason I asked about how Jack entreats her is because at the end of uh, that scene, he says to her, A girl is not ready to become no one, but she's ready to become someone else. Yeah. Exactly. And that, to me, seems like a compromise. That se- It seems like that girl, the tall girl, uh, doesn't have the same, uh, you know, basic uh, opportunity that Arya is getting here, which is to learn what it is to become someone else without being ready to be nobody. It's interesting, the role of the rival for Arya, because that rival girl is much more, uh, I guess, learned so far. She's a little further along than Arya is in, in terms of becoming nobody, but Jacken seems to think that that's okay. Yeah, I mean, she seems to have been there much longer. Um, I, there's a, I know a little bit, I'm guessing, of, of what's coming ahead with who this somebody is. I think mm-hmm. that this storyline is really interesting for her, both in the books and in the show. It's something so different than what we've seen before and something so different from what we've seen in fantasy, really. Uh, so it's it's really like fascinating to see it play out and see this new world of this new magical order that's very dark and in keeping with Game of Thrones, but also just different. Different is nice. It is, and she looked different when the, when the show opened. She actually, to me anyway, she looked older. Mm. Yeah. I think that's the hair and the showering. Well, you never discount the <laughs> the showering. The promises of a good shower. The power of a good shower. <laughs> the power. There you go. Oh, you know what? It's funny because this was a Brian Cogman episode again. Not to bring it back to uh, Sansa, but the bathing. There was another. There was more bathing in the in a Brian Cogman episode. Which we does he have a about. habit for? So, yeah, his. It wasn't uh, obviously not last episode that I can recall, but uh, the bath scene between Theon and Ramsay was his previous, I think his most recent before this. And then he did Jamie and Brienne as and well. He did Jamie oh. and Brienne, yes. So it's it's funny to actually point out uh when characters get into baths. But speaking of the game of faces, I'm really impressed with how well Tyrion managed to get himself out of certain death and his penis <laughs> being sold. <laughs> Tyrion uh talks about his manhood or and, and, and is called upon to defend his manhood uh, quite often in this show, and he never falls short of succeeding at winning people over with his uh, the way about himself. Although I will say it, it, it came his life came quite close to ending, and uh, almost even closer than it did last week, or as well, at the same distance here when these pirates showed up. So Jorah and Tyrion. Are walking. One are walking. <laughs> One way to put it is, for the first time, his cock got him out of trouble as opposed <laughs> oh, to into trouble. Hey-o. Oh man! Oh god! After this scene, though, he has got to live to the end because he can get out of any near-death situation. <laughs> I was so impressed, and like the look on his face, like that was good enough, right? That was good enough. Like I have to be alive. Yeah. How are they going to know it's my penis? Oh, and uh, and Jorah, Jorah, he's good. And Jorah's like, yeah, okay, we can play this game. <laughs> I loved that scene. I thought that was such great acting on both their parts, and also Ian Glenn. As Jorah, I think, is sort of, you know, an underrated, like, great actor on the show. 
And for such, I think it's a real testament to him how he can make Jorah so fascinating for that character being so uncharismatic. Like Jorah's <laughs> got to be the biggest stick in the mud on this entire show, and he's just <laughs> so good to watch. Well, it's because you're you're looking for that grin, you're looking for that like the twinkle in his eye that comes from when he catches on, you know, to to basically the fact that oh, we're actually going to try and fool these dozen pirates into t- taking us exactly where we want to go uh, and setting us up with a meeting for, you know, whoever's going to be presiding over that. They're basically, I mean, they, they're getting a free ride in a boat to, to Marine. And it's, it's pretty shocking considering Tyrion's whole strategy was just to go with the fact that they wanted to chop his cock off and give it to a cock merchant. He says to him, what, to get out of it, he says, how will the cock merchant know that it came from a dwarf? Like, you need to take me with, like, to him. And it's just, like, grasping as as What is it, though, desperately with as he can the people out east and have with dwarves? Cocks. Just generally, if you go back to what happened to him in Volantis right. when he's going the into the brothel... Guy. He says, oh, it's good luck to uh, rub a dwarf's head. And Tyrion responds, well, maybe Tyrion shouldn't have opened his mouth. He's like, well, you know, it's even better to suck a dwarf's cock. Do you think <laughs> that these pirates heard of that story and they believed maybe. it? Maybe. Maybe they were right on the other maybe side of the Maybe it's catching on that it's... Maybe. maybe. Yeah, they could have been behind Varys in line. Oh, my God. I want to know what cock merchants like do like no, during the day. I, I don't. If they're... Okay, yeah, yeah. You know what? No, I don't. No, I don't. Nobody send in answers to that question, but... We'll take him to the cock merchants. Tyrion just does an amazing job, and Terry touched on this a little bit, of of playing up Jorah when they're just being surrounded by these pirates. Like, yes, he uh, unseated Jamie Lannister at the tournament at Lannisport, and then Jorah finally catches on. He's like, yeah, and I killed a Dothraki blood rider in single combat. You know, he's like, he's talking to himself up, and it, it ends up saving his life, and now these two are headed back to Marine. Or at least Jorah's headed back to Marine. Tyrion's going there for the first time. Something I do want to talk about uh, before the slaver scene actually was that great scene where Tyrion essentially calls Jorah out on maybe Danny's not the right person to be ruling. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's only taken five seasons, but finally a character has laid out every single counter argument to Daenerys Targaryen being the savior of the show. And it's about time. That's all I got to say. Like, everything he said was right. And I think everything he said is something that fans should be questioning this season. Because Danny maybe isn't making the right decisions. Maybe he's fo- is following in her father's path a little bit. Uh, so I I have sort of been in the camp that Danny could end up, if, if not becoming a villain, then becoming not the right person to lead. Uh, so it was nice to see the show backing up my theory. Yeah. I mean, what does he say? That the Targaryens are famously insane. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, and, you know, what was interesting to me with that uh, that scene when the, right before the pirates um, is that he's questioning to Jorah Danny's right to rule based on that she has never set foot in Westeros like since her like since she was a child like that that's just something that he brings up that's in the dialogue and i'm I'm thinking like he said is it right for her for her to rule and i mean she's got the blood uh thing but i thought it was interesting for Tyrion, you know a lannister to be going against the notion that blood um is like is all you need i guess in a way Uh, yeah maybe maybe Varys is selling him on this whole you would be a good ruler you know type thing 
where it, it actually matters what, how good a king you are. Well, I think it's an interesting parallel to what we're seeing with her and Marine because she had not set a foot on that soil and she decided to be queen and look at how much she's messed it up and she doesn't mm. understand their customs and she's just sort of butchering her way through it. And, you know, who's to say she doesn't do the same thing in Westeros? She's heard stories of this her whole life, but she doesn't really know how that place works. And it's such a mess anyway. Like she hasn't built anything better out of Marine for all her trying. I can imagine that. Or any of the other cities. Right, exactly. She just basically went through and was like, oh, you're fixed, but that's not how it works. (laughs) Yeah, and and the whole idea of of her going back to Westeros is that there are families there that will support her. But is that really true after all this time that there will be families there that will rally to her cause? Yeah, always. You think, though, after everything that's been going on over the last however many years – don't you think that there are others that they would rather support or do, is it no. almost seen as this savior that's going to be flying in on her dragon and saving the world? Yeah, I think it's the savior thing. And I think that it's that she's larger than life. You know, when Robert Baratheon came in, even though he did take the throne, there were a lot of people who didn't agree with it. And even though the Mad King was the worst, uh, he <laughs> he still was a Targaryen and there still is loyalty to that name. So I think that definitely there are houses that are looking at how terrible Westeros is right now and are thinking, hey, maybe bringing the dragons back to Westeros isn't such a bad thing. Like, how much worse can it get, right? There was a, <laughs> there was actually a, a really great moment, though, in this conversation, too, when he's talking to Jorah about his father. And oh, it, yeah. there's yeah. the moment where he confesses what he did to Tywin uh, but then almost parallels it to the relationship that Jorah has with his father. And obviously, there seems to be a bit of a tenuous relationship there. I don't think it's as severe as what happened between Tywin and Tyrion. But just that uh, he's the one delivering the news mm-hmm. that Old Bear was killed in a mutiny right. beyond the wall... But at the same time, he pays his respects to to him when he's talking to Jorah. And he says, you know, what a great man he was and that he knew everything there was to know about all the men who served him and that he really enjoyed the time that he spent there uh, at the wall uh, with with Old Bear. So it was just a nice moment uh, to put in there. Yeah, certainly on the on the previously on uh, when they showed Old Bear, um it it really you know made me wonder made me curious as to how that story would you know would pay off i guess in this episode and the fact that Tyrion was able to have this uh t- you know tender moment with with Jorah they i think they really um he learned a bit about you know Tyrion and what kind of person he was even though he immediately shouted at him we are not traveling companions yeah <laughs> well as we already established jora is a bit of a stick in the mud yeah 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 but i i i want to know uh he's not as good as braun that's true no, i want to no know Braun. i know you're trying to transition i'm going to hold that i want to know what you guys think about sort of how jora took the news like because there's this moment where i mean he demands to know how his father died uh once tyrion lets it slip that he did respectfully um, but once he knows that it was mutiny, there's almost like an unreadable expression. And it seems to me like Jorah just like instantly on the spot makes his peace with the fact that his father was betrayed. Um, I don't know. It doesn't seem like he's vengeful at all. And I know it's not. I mean, I don't think he is. I think his dad, you know, 
made his life goal to be this Lord Commander, Jorah, and he obviously had a falling out because of how Jorah was cast out. Um, But I think it's hard not to respect a person like J.R. Mormont, and it's not like he betrayed his son in the way that Tywin Lannister did that showed he was a real hypocrite. So I think, you know, Jorah wanted to know the truth of what happened. But as we know, like justice has been served for the old bear. Those people are dead. Um, So I I can't imagine him, you know, setting off on a quest to avenge a person he hasn't seen in God, what, like 20 plus years? Well, you know, and I know too, he's, uh, Jorah has a very recent health development uh, to think about. I'm sure that's, that's probably uh, putting things in the more in the now, more in the immediate. And, you know, just like uh, we keep saying, or I keep saying with, with Stannis, I want sort of him to emerge victorious and immediately shield himself in victory, in his victory prior to Brienne's arrival at Winterfell, because I don't want to see her ruin it before it happens. <laughs> I also would like to see Jorah and Tyrion be able to get to Marine before the people who punched Jorah or tied him up start developing grayscale, because that would be terrifying. Oh, interesting. I feel like you need to touch the actual grayscale and that's i mean it should be spreading too i I guess it's still on his arm for the moment but it's it it, depends on the person it's going to be yeah something to something to keep in mind that that he is in close proximity to even Tyrion, and i wonder if a further development just a guess uh down the line is that jorah's gonna need to come clean or use it to his advantage i i really don't know how that would play out but it's something worth noting considering jorah doesn't pay any mind to it uh visibly in this episode all right there's one last section of this episode to head to and you know it's funny because i think screen time wise it occupies maybe a fifth of this entire episode but it is unbowed unbent unbroken the house words of the martells and Mm. you get i mean uh well and it ties right into the beginning of the episode when we're talking about how great of a singer (laughs) <laughs> Sir Bronn of the Blackwater is. So Bronn of the Blackwater and Jamie, the Kingslayer Lannister, are on horseback and they have a pretty cool plan, which is gonna get them all the way into the inner circle of the water gardens where there is not there are not many guards, and they're going to rescue Marcella. Yeah, honestly, I thought that this was the clunkiest part of the episode. Okay. For a couple of reasons. I thought it was just too easy, like, oh, Doran is like observing Marcella and Tristane kissing each other, but then the Sand Snakes and Elaria decide this is the perfect time to kidnap her. And it just so happens to be the exact same time that Bronn and Jamie are kidnapping her. Like, I just thought it was sloppy. And I just, I have not liked the Sand Snakes this season. I was mm. really excited about them, but I think, I think they're sort of like caricatures. I, I don't buy their need for vengeance i don't think it's necessary like i think we're all over it at this point and like over and died in fair trial by combat if anything he cheated with the poison um (laughs) i just like i don't think that their motivations are valid and i'm just like i just think it's all really cheesy and sort of doing a disservice to what could be a great Dorn storyline? When I, I don't know how it happens in the books, but but one of the things that I kind of most want to see um, is Doran Martell and the fact that Ed Dorm, Doran's reaction to all of this happening in the courtyard, you know, pretty much right after he was up on up above looking down on it, uh, the fact that they, you know, there's no reaction scene. 
uh, to meeting the fact that Jamie Lannister uh, is there and the fact that these women have conspired directly against him and his wishes. The fact that he there's no scene there of him reacting to it in this episode, you know, an episode titled after Dorne seems like a slight a little bit, um, or at least at the very least seems odd. And I kind of know what you're saying, Terry, too, like with uh, the Sand Snakes and really just the fights. It, it seems the the Sand Snakes uh, to me, the group as like as a group, come off as a little untrained. I mean, they do outnumber Bran and 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 Jamie or Bron. They do outnumber Bron and Jamie, um, but that it doesn't seem to to be as as dangerous of a battle to engage in as the other ones that we've seen. Uh, for Bron and Jamie, they kind of pretty much handled themselves pretty well. And I mean, I, I think they, they they come off as uh, a little undisciplined and definitely emotional. The fact that Bron is able to get such a, a rise out of the girl when he says, uh, you fight pretty good for a, a little girl. Yeah. Obara, Obara is like, you mean man, you know, kind of like really shows. Is that what happens? Yeah. It's, it's kind of like she he gets a rise out of her, like he's playing with her. But she's allowing it to happen. So that speaks to like a lack of discipline. And again, I don't know how they're at like in the books, but as as daughters of Oberyn, who's such a beloved character for, for the show, um, too, it, it it's it's shocking that the, the girls would be would be kind of come off as being, you know, undisciplined or un uh or emotional, I guess, in the way. But then again, I feel like I've just made my own counter argument because uh Oberyn's emotions uh got the best of him in a fight. I just think that they were like so cool in the books and they just do not, you're right. They seem emotional and young and untrained. And that's just like, not what I was expecting. And also not really how the show is treating them. And also, I guess my problem is we've met like six people in Dorne and it's supposed to be this big, powerful city. Like, give me some CGI showing what this land looks like more than just being the water gardens, you know, like they yeah. shot in Spain. They had this whole castle to film in and we've seen none of that. And it all just seems really sort of silly. I, I would, I would like to have seen just more extras, I think in Dorne so far. I mean, we have seen sort of isolated areas uh, around Dorne, but things like a, a marketplace, uh, like we got for Volantis, you know, spoke words to what that place was like. You're looking for almost a, a panoramic shot, right? In a way, a panoramic establishing. Even if in in the water gardens, you know, there were other people taking in the sights. Who then, you know, when the fights broke out, kind of ran for the guards, that kind of thing. The the only characters in Dorne are the principal cast members. You know, are the principal characters, and there are very few. Uh, extras, if any, yeah. that are actually just sort of living in Dorne. I would say I, I think it's it's challenging for the show to have to establish a place like Dorne five seasons in. Yeah, w- mm-hmm. with a whole new cast of characters, and they obviously were limiting in what they finally decided to go with. And the most notable exception, I think, is uh, Ariane Martel, who we we've talked briefly about in the past, who. It was is is a daughter of of Doran and uh, plays a pivotal role in the series and and the Sand Snakes have kind of taken on a large or actually more so Ilaria has taken on her role and I think that it's just it, in ways it's it, it's not that it's hard to follow but I think it's just hard to watch it it just I don't know that it really fluidly fits with everything else that's going on and and Terry talked about how. The security was lax, and 
Jamie and Bronn was just were just able to get into the water gardens because they were dressed as Dornishmen. Yeah, and also the the sand snakes did, and that those two things just happened to happen at the exact same time. Well, I mean, and 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 uh, Marcella, to her credit, recognizes Jamie right away. <laughs> Uncle Jamie, um, he's he's not very well. That would speak to him not being very well disguised, I guess. Yeah, um, you know, but but I I think too like. You know, and there, there's just some other quirks. Uh, Alaria, who we know is kind of, you know, acting from a place of raw emotion in encouraging the Sand Snakes to begin with to to go on this quest, uh, seems to be surprised when the guards come and close in on her in that pool chamber, which is exactly where she also gave them their pre-war pep talk. Yeah. Um, you know, she has not moved from that spot since sending them off, and she is gasping and surprised when it goes south and Doran's men find her. And and that seems, uh, again, just very, you know, interestingly uh, flawed. For, 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 for someone who's because... plotting to overthrow your prince, you would, you would be <laughs> a little more intelligent or more uh, smooth in execution. And you don't know how he knows. Is it just the commotion that mm. draws his guard? Well, he was like watching. <laughs> they were, he, we well, he was watching. there a moment ago. Yeah. Maybe he, you know what? He gets they around. Did I'm move. sure he's, they he's, did he's move, chairs like, on still. wheels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it is almost as if he kind of knew. He should have, considering the dialogue that Ilaria had with him, uh, the words that she had with him. But but at the same time, it is, I, I just would have preferred to have seen Duran uh, in, you know, kind of reacting. And I, I don't feel like that's something that they won't show. I mean, eventually, Jamie, we have to figure out whether he is let go or sent back to uh, King's Landing in pieces, you know, that kind of thing. I, I, I still feel like Jamie could talk out a piece. I mean, the bottom line, you know, part of Dorne that I liked in this episode was the fact that uh, Tristan and Marcella, we finally get to see them have words with each other. Um, we've seen them walking in the gardens previously, but this time they're actually, we see how they are, in fact, in in love or becoming uh, an item. They're into one another. It was like the most soft, PG-rated makeout session ever. <laughs> I liked that about this. I, I yeah. really did. Like I, 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 but I'm I was a stickler for the uh, Marjorie and Tom and bed scene too. Um, from I mean from the last season, not from not from this one. But uh, the the fact that Tristan is sort of put down with a single punch, um, from Jamie and 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 he stays down. Uh, or sorry, from Bron and he stays down is. Uh, also uh, speaks to him being more of a lover than a fighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, can, Romeo. I can really get behind that kind of a character. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, while we're, uh, we, we don't necessarily know what the fate of all these characters are going to be mm-hmm. because we're just not sure. I mean, Jamie and Braun could try and negotiate their way out of it. And then, of course, you have Ilaria and the Sand Snakes it, it's going to create an interesting situation for Prince Doran to try and figure out what's he going to do. But mm-hmm. my biggest question for the two of you is what's going to happen to Braun? Right. He was, sta- he was stabbed. He was sliced by yeah. the uh, And people staff. are speculating that maybe it was poisoned. Braun, I feel, is going to mimic a Jorah sort of storyline where he's going to have to treat pretty well with the local superpower uh in order to have to page kyburn in order to 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 yeah in order to secure the medicine that he needs it's 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 like jorah it's like we questioned terry uh whether jorah would 
you know, obviously succumb to grayscale because there has also, as often as there has been talk about the stone men and how terrible it is, there's also been talk of the cure, right? Stannis told his daughter that they, he called in everybody and they warded it off. There is a way to stop grayscale before becoming a stone man. So we wondered if that was, you know, gonna come to Jorah, if Danny, for instance, would take him in and then try and cure him. But with Bronn, it's gonna end up being, you know, does Jamie uh, is Jamie going to get on Doran's good side enough to when they discover that Bronn is ill, that they are able to get an antidote to the poison? I still stand by the theory that the initial threat that prompted uh, Jamie to go to Dorne didn't actually come from Dorne. There's a theory out there about that regarding the necklace that um, we know that there is another necklace. It was used in the show before, so maybe it's just sloppy, but also maybe that means something. There could be a scene where. Jamie sits down with Ilaria and Arya Hota and uh, and Doran, which there have been set photos released way back when uh, when the Spain stuff first started being shown that show them all sitting in a room together. So I almost imagine that they're going to be like, so why are you trying to take Marcella? And he's like, you threatened her. And they're like, uh, no, we didn't. What are you talking yeah. about? So I would love that to be what happens. But honestly... Who knows at this point? No, who, who knows? I, I, I honestly, I foresaw a similar scene. I mean, essentially, if it was Dorne that sent it, it was clearly Ilaria, you know, acting without Duran's wishes. Right. And honestly, I mean, this is something that they could get up and shake hands after, you know, oh, you sent us that cryptic box with the snake in it and her necklace. Yeah. Uh, but here's the thing, though, with, with Ilaria, she, at least from what she said in, in the previous episodes doesn't seem to have had any access to Marcella. So how would she have gotten this necklace to send to King's Landing? How would Ilaria have gotten it? Yeah, because the way she talks yeah. is that no, she's, she's never really been able to spend any time around Marcella. And certainly now, with knowing what Doran knows, he's not going to let her get anywhere near her. So I doubt she had access to her at any point before that. So who who would have sent that? So I think it's actually a really interesting sure, theory. Sure. Now, uh, one of our uh, listeners again wrote in, uh, and we re- we retweeted the tweet um, that this was a uh, perhaps a difficult or more difficult than usual episode to own. Now we did, uh, of course, get many owns, uh, which we will share with you uh, on our next, you know, or on our episode uh, later in the week, prehashing the following episode. But uh, I was wondering what you guys, if you guys have persevered and found an own of yourselves to ascribe to this episode. I mean, my own goes to Lady Elena. Just oh, cause... so you knew. Yeah, oh. you did. <laughs> just in general? Just yeah. in general. No, for seriously. Her awesomeness. Yeah, I mean, I already think I said that she should be the MVP of the series, but she's just, she cuts through the BS of this show. And I want Diana Rigg in every scene forever. Like, just recast her have her have doubles. I want her forever. Don't ever kill her. She can be the only one left standing. Maybe she should rule. I just love her forever. All my owns to Mm -hmm. the Queen of Thorns. (laughs) Uh, In what was a very uh, dark episode, I have to give my own to a very light moment, which was Tyrion. And it's when he tells him, it's when he tells one of the, uh, the pirates that you can't just hand a dried cock to a merchant. <laughs> and he replies, it'll be a dwarf-sized cock. And Tyrion says, guess again. <laughs> so, Love that Tyrion uh, Lannister. Much, much needed comedy in an otherwise somber episode. That is true enough. <laughs> I'm getting a lot of agreement. Yeah, Ricky from, agrees. Uh, Ricky the West agrees. Coast. 
And and I'm going to give uh, my own. I mentioned it just moments ago. My own goes to True Love, Prince Tristane Martel, and Marcella Lannister Baratheon. Well, Baratheon. Um, well, are... Lannister. <laughs> oh, it is. Well, yeah, knee Lannister. Maybe that's it. Um, they they appear to be in a genuine, youthful. Uh, romantic relationship and you know you it looks good on paper or actually doran says it looks terrible on paper um but they they seem to be making it work um you know and she she kind of defends him and doesn't really want to leave his side so uh yeah young love gets my own well those are our owns but there are many ways that uh, you can send in yours i know a number of people tweeted in on sunday night and we will get to those later on in the week but feel free to add to it uh, there's plenty of time to, to keep sending them in. Just tweet at us at Game of Owns, or you can scroll upon our Facebook wall at facebook.com slash Game of Owns. Or if you're feeling like you want to write uh, a little bit more than just a tweet or a post, you can email us, contact at gameofowns.com. I know that the episode that Zach recorded in Denver was very successful from what he said, his uh, interview with the band, his chat with the band, and I know we'll be hearing much more about that later in the week. You may even hear that episode uh, air quite shortly, quite soon, who knows, we'll find out, Um, but we will be back for our major owns uh, satchel parcel opening reading spectacular, (laughs) and definitely... Look forward to that, but guys, this this was uh, this was a lot of fun. I mean, it, it was a difficult episode to watch, but I feel like uh, it's always good to be able to talk through these things uh, with you guys. Terry, thank you again for coming on and joining us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Now, you mentioned writing about uh, this episode in particular. Also, I'm associate editor over at zaptoit.com, and I basically my piece last night was sort of working through my own reactions uh, by adding in Twitter reactions that were very similar. So it was sort of a a social recap with my own thoughts mixed in, which are very similar to what you would have heard in this podcast. Uh, Also just, you know, George R. R. Martin's sort of reaction to it and uh, some other elements about it. But yeah, you can read all my thoughts on Game of Thrones and there are many over at zaptoit.com where I cover that and a bunch of other shows. Well, we are a podcast uh, in case you, <laughs> in case our listeners missed the memo, we are in fact a podcast that you're listening to right now. Um, and as such, we are available over on iTunes. There is a uh, bio for us and you can, as we sometimes remind you, uh, rate and review our show over on iTunes. And basically it is a great way. I know we're halfway through the season now or more than halfway through the season and uh, people may still be trying to find uh, a Game of Thrones podcast to help them through their thoughts, especially after an episode like this one. And so definitely, you know, leaving us a review, giving us a good rating will uh, allow our show to pop up sooner and easier for anyone searching for us. So please definitely go over to iTunes, uh, find Game of Owns, and give us a, a review of your own. And remember, nothing fewer than five stars is acceptable. <laughs> As per we, Professor Stannis. Yeah, Professor Stannis says nothing fewer. So Terry, uh, thanks again for coming on. We'll definitely have you on in the future. I know there's going to be a lot more to discuss. There's a lot of uh, open-ended theories that we need to hopefully... Uh, wrap up before the season ends yeah thank you so much for having me i will definitely be back before the end of the season although i'm dreading a bit where it's gonna go at this point (laughs) we all have the same concerns if i could have any parting wish for this week's episode it's just that lady elena forever is that a (laughs) t-shirt